0: We're at the National Geographic Museum here in Washington, D.C. for a magnificent new exhibition on Queens of
1: Egypt. So it's 8.30 in the morning. The museum hasn't even opened yet. And we're getting a special tour from archaeologist-in-residence Fred Heber.
0: It's got 350 artifacts in it from the very oldest collection of Egyptian antiquities actually in the world.
1: When Fred's not out in the field studying ancient trade routes or searching for Nefertiti's tomb, he's back here helping to curate this museum. Fred winds us through the dimly lit exhibit. He points out a perfectly preserved royal sandal, a bust of Cleopatra, some stone statues of pharaohs from the Valley of the Kings.
0: That's a a life-size sculpture of Thutmose I. This is clearly a man who loves his job. Opening the boxes, it's like Christmas 350 times over. Here's this big box. It has no label whatsoever. We know that we have to open the box. And it's like, wait, wait. Oh, it's Thutmose. He brings us over to a long glass case. So we have here an absolutely unique papyrus. It's about 18 feet long, describing this conspiracy that happened to pop off the pharaoh.
1: Fred says the text is written in hieratic, a cursive form of hieroglyphics. It's really beautiful. But the details written down here? Those are not pretty. It's a
0: judicial document. It's a record of a court proceeding in which the court has identified a couple of perpetrators who were scheming to assassinate Pharaoh Ramses III. It describes having the perpetrator's Plead guilty. It describes how the perpetrators were forced to commit suicide. It's all
1: written down here. 39 people were convicted of high treason. Some were disfigured. Others were executed or forced to kill themselves. This papyrus tells the story of an inside job, a conspiracy hatched by the Pharaoh's own family by one of his wives. I'm Peter Gwynn, and this is Overheard at National Geographic, a show where we eavesdrop on the wild conversations we have at NatGeo and follow them to the edges of our big, weird, and beautiful world. This week, a dynasty in disarray, a secret kept for millennia, and some new science that cracks the case wide open. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Colbert It's remarkable how much we still don't know about ancient Egypt. Egyptology is a field based on best interpretations. It's filled with mystery. And this is a story that has stumped scholars for a very long time. What happened to Ramses III? It's been a mystery for more than 3,000 years. But thanks to science and some clever detective work by dogged archaeologists, we now have a better idea about what really went down.
2: I'm I'm a dirt archaeologist. I dig in Egypt.
1: Penn State University's Susan Redford is, well, a dirt archaeologist.
2: Yeah, that's what I call myself. I dig. Scholars
1: call the papyrus Fred just showed us the Judicial Papyrus of Turin. It's named after the museum in Turin, Italy, where it's normally housed. But it's got another name, the Harem Conspiracy Papyrus.
2: This document relates a conspiracy that was formed and instigated by the women of the royal harem against Ramses III to overthrow him, to raise in rebellion, and to also displace the crown prince.
1: This isn't the usual stuff of royal harems. To ensure the family line, the Egyptian pharaohs had a lot of wives. They all lived in the harem, It started out as a special place in the palace, but by the time of Ramses III, the harems had evolved into entire estates with their own many economies. There were schools, livestock, agriculture, dozens of wives, even more kids, and the wives had a very important job to keep the family dynasty going. Typically, there was a great royal wife, and then there were several other wives whose sons could also be in line for the throne.
2: I mean, the harem had to have been a a hotbed of intrigue, a powder keg of different women, um, especially if they bore the king's sons, like whose son gets to be on the throne next.
1: Top priority was given to the firstborn son. And as you might expect, sibling rivalry was very real. Ever since she was a grad student, Susan's been fascinated by the harem conspiracy papyrus.
2: And it really grabbed me, of course. I think everybody loves a murder mystery.
1: (laughs) Susan says scholars have known about this papyrus for a long time. In the early 1800s, it showed up at a market in Luxor, a place that, back then at least, was like a garage sale for Egyptian antiquities. It had been cut into pieces, probably so that it could be sold off in chunks for more money. So it's hard to know how complete of a document it really is.
2: There was obviously a lot of unanswered questions.
1: And there's a rather conspicuous omission.
2: The women are not there. It includes the trial transcripts for the male perpetrators of the conspiracy and not the women. The
1: court record says next to nothing about them, even though we know these women existed.
2: They were the king's property. The women of the harem were king's chattel. We're never going to know their names, or how many there were, or what happened to them, except for Taya.
1: Taya, the only woman mentioned by name in the papyrus. And Susan thinks that Taya wanted her son, Pentaware, to become the next pharaoh. She's accused of instigating the whole rebellion. Egyptologists have speculated about who Taya was for a long time one interpretation by an American archaeologist in the early 1900s stuck, but it didn't hold up for Susan.
2: One thing that caught my eye uh, was that he mentioned that the assassination of the king was instigated by Taya, and he says, oh, this was a lesser wife of the king. And that, over the years, had become entered and repeated as though it were fact. And I thought, there's something funny about that. Because if she were a lesser wife of the king in the harem, and there were countless women in the harem, why follow her?
1: Right, because Taya rallied dozens of people to be her co-conspirators, including several powerful figures. The king's physician, an army commander, the royal magician...
2: To feel that she could raise a rebellion with many high officials of the king following her to put her son on the throne and have the, the country go along with this, I thought, this is not a lesser wife. This is not some faceless member of the King's harem.
1: Susan knew there was definitely more to this story.
2: I wanted to investigate all aspects of this case, uh, marshal all the evidence, to try to come up with the full picture of what occurred.
1: But the more she looked into the document, the more curious it got. For example, right at the beginning, the murdered pharaoh Ramses III makes a strange appearance.
2: He's talking from beyond the grave. He's saying, I'm already dead. I'm already among the great gods. And he's almost washing his hands as to what will become of these conspirators.
1: So wait, the dead king's ghost makes it into the judicial document? It's kind of Shakespearean, right? But that spectral cameo has confused scholars for a long time. Some even wondered if Ramses III had survived the assassination attempt. But Susan is pretty convinced of her interpretation.
2: He died from this. There's no question. But how did he die?
1: The court proceeding doesn't identify a murder weapon. There's no play-by-play of the crime scene. But we do have some physical evidence. The body of Ramseys III. He was found stashed in a tomb with a bunch of other royalty.
2: When this the mummy of the king was examined, and he was examined in the 60s, when they only had x-ray machines, they x-rayed all the mummies, the royal mummies. The mummy of Ramses III, we knew he was assassinated in a conspiracy, uh, but... This initial pathological examination with an X-ray, it showed no wounds to the body, and you would think the quickest way to dispatch the king would be with, you know, you'd stab him. Uh, yeah.
1: But it seemed like a natural death. There were other bodies, too. Tucked into the same tomb with Ramses III were a handful of princes and princesses, some queens, some priests, all of these nicely embalmed mummies, and then this other guy.
2: We've called it the Screaming Man because he looks like he died in agony. His head is back and his mouth is open. Now, the interesting thing about this uh, Screaming Man was that he wasn't embalmed.
1: Archaeologists had never found a mummy like this before. He was wrapped in a sheepskin, which back in the day was kind of a trashy thing to wear to the afterlife. This was one janky mummy. The examination showed something else, too.
2: It showed that his hands and his feet had been tied.
1: Meaning he probably put up a fight on his way out. Maybe he was executed.
2: It looks that way. But why is he being buried with royalty?
1: None of it added up, so Susan kept digging. She headed to a place along the Nile called Medina Habu. It's a royal compound that houses the mortuary temple of Ramses III.
2: This is the king's temple. It's all about him. He's the star here.
1: There are massive reliefs carved in the walls showing palace life, religious ceremonies, scenes of Ramses III in battle.
2: In the first half of his reign, he was almost a hero king.
1: He made a name for himself early on by fighting off two foreign invasions, first from the Libyans and then later a really big one from the peoples of the sea.
2: They were almost unstoppable until they they faced uh, Ramses III in Egypt.
1: But the temple walls don't tell the whole story. Scholars say the fighting took a serious toll on Egypt's economy. And then other problems started to pop up. Droughts, famine, and the first recorded labor strike.
2: So you you get the feeling um, that he's losing support, uh, those that conspired against him. They seem to be quite confident that the people would go along with a rebellion
1: but a rebellion isn't pictured on the temple walls either. Now, the walls only portray the pharaoh's greatest hits and the VIPs in his life.
2: There was um, a scene in the back wall of the temple uh, that showed um, the king sitting at one end of the wall. Sort of a, a religious scene. And there were two senior princes. These are the senior sons. Obviously, the sons in line for the succession.
1: But in another relief... Susan realized the order of succession had changed. The first prince is there, but the second prince is missing.
2: And I thought, oh my God, it went unnoticed.
1: Other scholars hadn't noticed that in this relief, a new person, a different son, is now second in line to the throne. So why would Egyptian royalty remove and replace such a high-ranking prince in the family lineup?
2: I thought, there he is. This has to be pen to wear.
1: Pintoer, a son of Ramses III and the son of Thea. He was named in the papyrus as a chief conspirator, along with Thea and her followers. Okay, so in the first relief, Pintoer was the son who was second in line to the throne. But in the second relief, he's been replaced.
2: I think we're on firm ground in saying that since it was Thea and her son was involved, that, that they really honestly felt that the son pent should have been the next in line for the throne.
1: And that's why they plotted to overthrow the pharaoh. And if Taya's son was already that close to the top, then Taya wasn't simply a lesser wife.
2: She was a queen. This was a
1: queen. But Susan says the writers of the papyrus downplayed Thea's rank, and they aimed to keep the skeletons of this family drama hidden in the closet.
2: This was disgraceful. Uh, You didn't want this blackening the family.
1: So this is what we know. Ramses III was murdered. And if the aim of the conspiracy was to place Pentuer on the throne, that was thwarted. And that's where Susan left the story when she published her book in 2002.
2: Ah, but there's new evidence.
1: Maybe you've heard the phrase, dead men tell no tales. But whoever came up with that clearly hasn't met Dr. Sahar Saleem.
3: I spend maybe more time with the mummies than with my family, but just don't, don't tell them.
1: Sahar is a paleoradiologist living in Cairo. She x-rays and CT scans fragile ancient artifacts.
3: I love my, uh, my mummy patients. The mummy patient is uh, sometimes is uh, better than the, the human because uh, they don't move.
1: Think of her as a mummy coroner, minus the scalpel. Sahar and her team have scanned lots of royal mummies. And in 2009, Ramses III was on her table.
3: There's um, a lot of serenity in the face of uh, Ramses uh, the, um, the III. There was nothing funny or peculiar.
1: So just your average well-kept mummy.
3: The face is with strong features. Although the embalmers, they had the wrapping so tight that they flattened the nose of the king.
1: Sahar says there must have been miles of linen around the pharaoh's body. And so well-glued, she says, that he was hard to unwrap. Anyone who tried probably got frustrated and gave up. Sahar didn't unwrap him either. Instead, she slid him into a CT scanner. The machine took thousands and thousands of images.
3: And I just keep rolling these scans for hours and hours and look at each one of them. You you just get more and more acquainted with the mummy.
1: The images were then transformed into three-dimensional composites so Sahar could see the pharaoh from all angles, outside and inside.
3: And when I just put them together, I just stood up of of my, my desk and I started dancing because I was very happy. Imagine and can see what is inside the mummy and what the embalmers placed.
1: Inside the abdomen of Ramses III were four figurines of the sons of the Egyptian god Horus. These were figures you might find painted on urns in ancient Egyptian tombs. One looks like a person, another a jackal, a baboon, and a hawk.
3: This is like one of the like, most joyful uh, moments in this uh, hard study that I do to get to know something and to see it for the first time.
1: And there was a lot to see. The body was filled with treasures.
3: The embalmers even tried to put a specific kind of amulet, the eye of Horus, which has the characteristic of uh, uh, giving the healing power.
1: Amulets were placed in his neck, and around his feet.
3: That means that these areas, they need attention. They need to be healed for the body to be used in the, uh, the life after, as sound, as complete as uh, possible.
1: Sahar says this is the idea behind mummification.
3: It's to preserve the body in order to be, to be there for the life after. This is the exact body they are going to use.
1: But this mummy was wrapped and glued unusually tight, Sahar says that's because the embalmers wanted to hide his injuries, and they remained hidden for a very long time. Remember those x-rays done in the 1960s? The ones that made it look like Ramses III died a natural death? Well, Sahar's scans showed something different.
3: There was this wide, deep cut wound in the front of the lower neck. It's so deep that it reached the bone. This is a sort of a fatal wound that nobody could escape its fate.
1: So really, really bloody. Then there was something else.
3: And there is another wound in the left foot. The big toe was totally chopped off and there was no evidence of healing. This is something that happened just prior to death.
1: To patch the Pharaoh up for the afterlife, the Royal Embalmers made a prosthetic toe. They placed healing amulets all over his body. And they used lots of glue. The murder of Ramses III was coming into focus.
3: Yeah, and I'm bringing the crime scene uh, back to life. We got to know the plot with the different assailants from different, standing in different positions using different weapons. So this is a really bloody crime scene that, uh, if you imagine happening in the palace, would necessitate a lot of chaos.
1: A lot of chaos, and there was more to discover. There was still someone else to be examined. Remember the other mummy who was found in the same tomb as Ramses III? The screaming mummy?
3: This mummy was smelled really bad.
1: He was hastily preserved, not cleaned, oiled, and wrapped. No, he was sprinkled with salt, wrapped in a sheepskin, and stuffed into a crudely made wooden box. And he still had his brain and guts, which was really strange. Embalmers always took those out, but not with this guy. No one knew for sure who he was, so Sahar checked the DNA. And she confirmed that the screaming mummy was related to Ramses Third.
3: There is 99% that the relationship is a... Father and son.
1: Sahar thinks she knows who it is. Pentaware.
3: Pentaor was mentioned in the papyrus that uh, he was forced to kill himself. We found that there were marks of maybe ropes at uh, the neck. It could be uh, they just asked him or just forced him to uh, to hang himself. It could be
2: like that.
1: So we have Pentaware, we have Ramses III, but where's Thea?
2: I don't think we have her mummy.
1: Archaeologist Susan Redford has a theory. Ancient Egyptians sometimes used fire as a form of punishment.
2: They talked about uh, when they burn people alive that then they're, they've gone to dust, you know, so they won't go into the afterlife. And then that their ashes are strewn on the road for donkeys to walk over.
1: This is just about the worst fate imaginable for an ancient Egyptian, Total obliteration. Nobody. no afterlife.
2: That's the end of you. <laughs> that's it. That's it.
1: Well, that's it. Until thousands of years later when some dogged archaeologists decide that's not it.
3: I think that as an Egyptian, uh, this is something that I have to do. I honor the, the bodies I examine. I look at them as... Uh, My great ancestors, the great kings, uh, that they deserve all the respect and the honor. And I hope by doing what I'm doing is I'm bringing them back to life.
1: And that is how their stories live on. To learn more about the harem conspiracy, check out the links in our show notes. They're right there in your podcast app. And be sure to subscribe to Overheard at National Geographic. Overheard at National Geographic is produced by Robin Miniter, Emily Ochsenschlager, Kristen Clark, Brian Gutierrez, and Jacob Pinter. Our editors are Casey Minor and Ibi Caputo. Hansdale Sue composed our theme music and engineers our episodes with additional help from Jay Olszewski and Ruth Michelson. Special thanks to Pineapple Street Media and WPSU Penn State. This podcast is a production of National Geographic Partners. Susan Goldberg is our editorial director. I'm your host, Peter Gwynn. Thanks for listening, and see you all next week.